You're listening to the West Side Podcast, a part of the LA International Church of Christ family of churches, worshiping God in LA since 1989. If you know me well, I rearrange furniture all over the place, so uh, this is kind of normal for me here. Good morning, church. Great to be together. Excited to be here. Uh, my name is Rick uh, Meckhamson, and I got to share that because I'm kind of the new guy here. My uh, wife, Heather, and I moved here this summer, so about six months we've been here. So I know not everybody knows who we are and stuff. You know, another introduction that's important today is uh, just the other day we had a baptism at Pepperdine University. And my wife and I had the great privilege of helping to shepherd the ministry in the campus. But I want to introduce to you guys, Laura Ann Pecos right over there, just got baptized. Very excited for her. Turn your Bibles over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. You know, my family, we just moved here, just my wife and I, and my wife Heather and myself. Our two kids are grown and out of the house. We're empty nesters, uh, which I know is shocking looking at us. We're so adorably young, but... Um, yeah, and humble apparently too, but... Today's my wife's birthday as well. You know, we're here now and we're excited about that being here, but to be honest, about 12 years ago, we almost divorced. About 12 years ago, my wife wasn't coming to church at all, and I was only coming to church because I had kids. And I was hanging on because I felt obligated to them to be coming, but to be honest, my heart was very far from God. And it got so bad in our lives that we had actually separated. So 12 years ago on her birthday, we weren't even living in the same house. And I was sitting there watching my life crumble before my very eyes as everything we had built, because we'd become Christians in campus, we had dated in the campus ministry, we'd gotten married in the church, we had our kids in the church, we'd been in the full-time ministry for years, and then everything just imploded. And to be honest, it was because I neglected my heart with God, my, my own walk with Him, and I didn't lead my family. And I had allowed the world to pollute us, as the book of James says, and I had allowed that to come in, and we were into our careers, and we were just going after the money and, and, and living for the world, and it totally hardened our hearts. And I was in the room. My wife wasn't coming to church where I was in the room, but I was in the back seat, and I was late, and I left early. My arms were crossed, and I was not somebody you would fellowship with. And I remember that, that same year having to tell my daughter, who was in sixth grade at the time, my son was in third, and telling them your mom is moving out. And watching our life fall apart, and then yet God rescued us. That was 12 years ago. That was two weeks ago. I got to walk my daughter down the aisle and marry her off to a great man of God in Virginia named John. She's a faithful disciple, doing great there. My son's a faithful disciple at Cal State Fullerton. I remember even on the way to the wedding, we're praying on the way to the wedding, and I remember just praying, and I just started losing. I lost my mind in the car. I was sobbing. And my poor wife was looking at me like in shock, like, are you going to be able to do this wedding? (laughs) 
And I'm like, I don't know. I was, I don't know if I can. But I was, I was sobbing because I was so moved by God's grace in my life. Of course, there's that part of marrying your daughter away, which is a very surreal experience. But even more than that, it was just being overwhelmed by what God had done in my life. And who am I to be able to do that? To still have a family. To still be in the room. To stand here in front of you today. And I'll tell you, one of the greatest blessings that I've come so much to appreciate is the church family. We don't understand how good we have it until we almost lose everything. And when I was staring at the face of death, to be honest, and feeling like, man, I'm losing everything. I'm out the door. I'm losing my salvation, my marriage, my kids, everything. And then when God catches you as you fall, and he puts you back on solid ground, and just remember going back to church, like, man, I'm just so glad to be in the room. And I ran up to the usher, like, I want to be an usher. I want to put out song books. That was back when we had song books, right? And, and I want to set up chairs. And, and I was so grateful to be there. The blessing of the family of believers is one of the greatest blessings we have. Because we get to share life together. So as we're here together, today together, praising God and worshiping, don't take for granted who you're sitting next to. What a great blessing it is to have each other. We are so grateful to be here to be a part of your family, to have you guys love up on us. We really appreciate it because I don't deserve it. You know, all our failures, all of our imperfections, all of our brokenness, but with God, all things are possible. Despite me, all things are possible. Any wound can be healed. Any miracle can happen. And that's what we've seen. That's what we've learned. When we go to Him, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, not on ourselves, when we give up trying to control everything and trying to fix everything and trying to live on our own strength, when we surrender ourselves to the One who can do more than all we can ask or imagine, then anything's possible. Then I can stand here today. Then I can do that. Your life can radiate the love of God, and you can experience life to the full that is promised. You know, we're still broken. But that's okay. Because church is for broken people. This is not a museum of perfect people. Church actually is a place, much more like a hospital, where the sick can come and be healed, the lonely can find love. Where God can put us back together again. I love it uh, as, as Jesus puts it this way. When John the Baptist sends his disciples to go to him to find out, hey, are you really the Son of God? We think you are, but are you really the Son of God? He says this is what he tells them as proof that he is the Son of God. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. That's the proof. That's what God does so well. He puts us back together again. That's Jesus' specialty. And all the healing, all the love, and all the blessings we've received, all that God has allowed us to experience, the miracle of transformation in our family, the memories that we've built, the friendships that we've built through it all, the heartache, the tragedies, the disappointment, all of it. You know what that is, right? That's life. 
That's his great adventure we're allowed to be on. That's his great race that we're a part of. It's life. And because of God, we get to do it together. We get to share it together. Now for me, looking back, knowing all I would go through, all that God did, I wouldn't change anything I went through. None of the trials. I wouldn't take any of them away. I would go through them all the same if I could rewind it. But there is one thing I would change. I'd change how I went through it. I'd live with less fear, less hesitation, more urgency, more boldness, and a lot more passion. And then imagine what God could have done. If I had given my whole heart from day one, how much more he could have done. You know, when we see the end clearly, it gives perspective, doesn't it? When we know how the movie ends, we don't panic in the middle. (laughs) They're going to die. No, we know they're at the end. When we see how it ends, it, it gives us perspective of all the steps along the way. The title of the sermon today is Living Backwards. Living Backwards. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, we have this great verse from Paul as he looks at his life backwards. He's at the end of his life. And he talks about it in in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 6, says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there's in store for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for His appearing. Now what an amazing thing to say at the end of your life. Man, I made it! I didn't quit. I stayed faithful to the end. You know, Paul had faced many trials that make our hardships look pretty <laughs> pretty wimpy. He'd been in prison multiple times. He'd been beaten. He'd been flogged. He'd been shipwrecked. He'd been betrayed. He'd been stoned and left for dead. But he focuses on the end, doesn't he? He focuses on heaven. He says, yeah, those things happen, but I'm going to achieve this, this crown of righteousness. It's waiting for me. It's in store for me. See, he's living backwards. He's thinking, I'm going to heaven. All of these other things, they had their place, but that wasn't that big a deal because I'm going to heaven. He focused on the end. And he says, not only to me, this crown of righteousness, this great reward is not just for me. He says, for all of us, for anyone who's longing for his appearing. And that's us who've longed for his appearing. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Shouldn't we all be longing for Jesus' appearing? Shouldn't we be longing for the day when we get to meet Him? When we get to leave this broken, jacked up, dark world that we're on and be with Him? And that was Paul's attitude. He focused so much on the end that it gave perspective to everything else. You know, in my midlife crisis that I'm currently enjoying... I can't afford a Corvette. I don't want to get a tattoo because, you know, I'm afraid of needles. So I do, uh, I do Spartan races instead. 
Spartan race, if you know what that is, it's basically an obstacle course for those who lack judgment. <laughs> and it's a bunch of people that just, they don't think well, and they don't think ahead, and they just go out there, and, and it's several miles, different lengths, you do obstacles, and they just basically try to ruin your life and break your body, and, and you get at the end this, this medal at the end that somehow makes it all worthwhile. I can't walk for a month, but I got a medal. <laughs> and uh, there's one called the Spartan Beast, and the name kind of implies what it is. It's a half marathon, it's 30-something uh, obstacles, and it's all like hills and terrible you know, disaster. I did one, uh, the first one I ever did on that, it was 101 degrees. So far, it's starting out great, right? It was in Temecula, it was all dirt hills and stuff, and I remember as I was running that race, as I'm going, I'm like, I'm going to die. I was getting dizzy, I was nauseous, I was having a heat stroke. But because I lacked judgment, I carried on. <laughs> and I remember going, and I remember going, I'm 45 years old, I remember going on this race, and on the side are these like whimpering, moaning bodies of these 20-something-year-old athletes who look way better shaped than I do. And they're laying there moaning and holding their legs and vomiting, getting pulled out of there and stuff. And my little 45-year-old untrained body is moving right past them. And I remember watching them going, look at the carnage, you know, like, but I was still going. But I remember in that race, there's many times in that race, like, just thinking of the end. Longing for the end. I just got to get there. And when I got to the finish line... And they put the metal over my neck. I started weeping. I, I didn't see it coming. It, I didn't feel super manly at that moment. You know, <laughs> I'm like weeping out of relief. And I couldn't believe I made it. You know, when we think about the end, everything leading up to it suddenly makes sense. Second Corinthians chapter 4. We read in verse 17... For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Again, this is Paul's attitude about it. He's, Man, I'm thinking about heaven. I'm focused on the finish line. And then as he looks back over the imprisonments and the beatings and the floggings and being left for dead and being betrayed and shipwrecked, he goes, oh, light and momentary troubles. And I love this statement he says about it. He says, these things are achieving eternal glory. That these things that we go through in life, these very difficult times, these tragic events, these things, like, oh man, something's wrong. My life's falling apart. Why is this happening to me? And Paul says, you know what? Those things are necessary. Those are your steps. Those things achieve for you the glory Everything we go through are necessary. They're purposeful. Because they achieve the glory in the end. You can't get around them. We focus on the finish. We fix our eyes on eternal things. We stop looking at the temporary things of, why is this happening? My job and my home and my health and my finances, whatever it is in that moment, light and momentary. Those things are necessary steps to where we're going. So we live backwards. With our eyes fixed on the finish line, 
When I was doing that race and I'm like flipping tires in the heat going, what am I doing? And at the end, you're like, you know what? But I'm getting there and I got to get through this to get to that. So I'm going to flip this thing. And as we're living our lives, the same thing, man, why am I going through this? It doesn't matter. I got to flip this thing and I'm going to go there. This is one more step and it's getting me closer to the goal. We need these things in our lives. Everything we go through in life is temporary, but it leads us one step closer to the goal. You know, jobs come and go. Money comes and leaves very quickly. Babies are born and people die. New friendships are made and friends move away. The kids grow up. They selfishly leave the house and get married. Because apparently their father wasn't enough for him, huh? It's all temporary anyways, isn't it? Church, live backwards. Let's live backwards together. Let's fix our eyes on the goal. Man, it's not about here and now. We're going somewhere. We're, we're achieving something. And whatever you're going through right now, no matter how terrible it may feel, it's achieving for you eternal glory. It's a necessary step to the finish line. Our life is a mist, isn't it? It's the book of James says. We're here today, we're gone tomorrow, but eternity is forever. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll look at a couple of verses from Paul there, because Paul has this incredible perspective on this. He was so heaven-focused, and, and several times in my Christian life, I've sat down going, I'm going to write a description of heaven. It's going to be like a bestseller. It's going to be incredible. I'm going to describe it in words that when you read it, you get shivers. You're like, man, I want to go. And I just, but I can't. You ever tried that? I can't do it. I can't do it justice. Paul actually said in a different verse in in 2 Corinthians 12, he says in that passage, he says that he'd seen heaven. He mentions a time 14 years earlier where he was taken and shown paradise. And that puts it probably in his first missionary journey, probably around the time he was stoned and left for dead in Lystra. That's a good time to see heaven when you're left for dead. He doesn't know how it happened, but he knows I'd seen it. And I love that passage in 2 Corinthians 12 because then you go, oh, what was it? You're waiting for him to tell you, like, dude, I saw heaven. Okay, tell me. And he goes, but I can't tell you about it. He actually says in that passage, he's not permitted to speak of it. But then the next qualifier is, but to be honest, you wouldn't understand. He says, it says it's inexpressible things. There's no way to describe what's coming. Imagine if you could see heaven for just one minute. Imagine right now if if the, the roof of this building just tore off. And you saw heaven and you could see God and you could see Jesus for just one minute. Church would be over. We're good. Amen. I'm out the door. I got nothing else to hear. But also imagine how different you'd be. You'd feel different about your job and the taxes you got to pay, problems at home. Everything would be in perspective. Just one minute. First Corinthians chapter nine. Oops, i got to go backwards. Come on, Rich. 
Starting in verse 24. He says, Do not know that in a race all runners run, but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. He describes life as this race. He's like, live it in such a way that you make it to the end. Live it in such a way that you win this thing. You focus on the end. You run with all your might. You know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the Olympics. I just respect the athleticism of curlers and things like that. I just I can't get my brain around how they do it. You know, in a race, it's amazing. When you watch a race, it's not like if it's like tight, you know, towards the end, that they're like, oh, I'm going to slow up right now because, you know, I ran pretty good for a while. No, they just they keep going. They, they push harder at the end. They call it their kick, right? They, at the very end, you see them going, all of a sudden, someone just goes, pew, and they just take off, and everybody else is falling apart, and that person had that extra in them to get there. As our race continues, that we should be running faster as we run. That our race should be picking up speed, not slowing down. As we age, and I'm speaking to an aging fellowship, if you're wearing glasses to see me, You know, it's to our shame that we look at the youth going, okay, young people, we got the college students, we got the teens. All right, young people, be radical for God. You be bold. You go do something amazing. To be honest, and I'm in this category as well, the older people should lead this church. The older people, because they know God better. We've walked with Him longer. We've seen more miracles. We know more scriptures. Our faith should be greater than anyone else in the room. We should be more devoted, more passionate, more bold, more willing to give things up than the youth. They're just getting to know God. We know Him. And to be honest, we're closer to the finish line than they are. We're meeting Jesus sooner than they are. We should be investing in eternal things even more than them. The young people in the room should look at us older people and go, man, look at them go. Man, I want to be like them as I get older. I want to be as mature as they are and, and as self selfless and sacrificial as they are. We should set the pace. As we get older, we should pick up the speed. I love this verse in Hebrews 12, 1. About our race, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and run with perseverance the race marked out for us. He said, man, you've got to be running right now. I mean, take off things that are slowing you down. No one goes jogging with their backpack on and big boots and dragging a dog. I mean, you don't do that. Anything that's going to slow me down, I want to take it off. I want to run my race for God as best I can. As fast as I can. Throwing off everything that might slow me down. And I love how he says that this race marked out for us. You know why? Because God has marked a race for you. And your race is different than mine. We all have the same finish line, but we have different courses to run. So don't compare races. Don't go, man, why is your life so easy? 
I love that passage in John 21 when, when Jesus tells Peter, Hey, Peter, got some bad news. Satan wants to sift you like wheat. And by the way, they're going to lead you away and kill you. And he's like, what? And then he points at John and goes, well, what about him? And Jesus goes, don't worry about him. You worry about you. you got your race to run. And he has his own. Your race is your race. Don't be bitter about it. Don't complain about it because God himself marked your course. And it's different than mine. So don't get sad when someone else like they're running downhill with a backwind all the time. Man, that lives easy. You know what, though? Your steps, your race is achieving for you glory. So run your race as fast as you can. Throw off everything that hinders, everything that's going to slow you down. And you run faster and faster. How are you running your race? Is there anything holding you back? Is there anything entangling you? Is there anything hindering you? Is there anything, man, I'm just, I'm bogged down with this. I can't run my race for God the way I want to because this thing is slowing me down. Turn over to Philippians chapter 1. I want to share with you the top five deathbed regrets. This is a list compiled by nurses of terminal patients. It's a turning to Philippians 1. Top five deathbed regrets. These nurses have, have seen and they've been with people as they're dying. And they've heard and been recording kind of the final words and kind of the last things people were saying as their life ended. These are the top five deathbed regrets. Number one, I wish I had followed my dreams and not played it so safe. That's the number one regret people have when they face death. They played it safe. Didn't follow what they, their heart really wanted to do. Number two is, I wish I'd spent more time with the people I love. It's a big regret. Our time is short. Our time together is very short. I wish I hadn't spent so much time chasing things that don't matter. I wish I'd expressed how I felt more often. Taking the time to tell people what you really feel in the moment. And I wish I'd lived a life with greater purpose. And when asked, are you ready to meet God, the overwhelming answer was no. Fear, not longing, was the most common emotion. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 22. Paul considers his life, he says, if I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. What shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Paul, as he looks, he's like, man, what do I do? He's like, I want to go to heaven so bad. I would much rather go to heaven than be here. But as long as I'm living, my life's going to mean something. My race will mean something. I'll have an impact on this earth as long as I'm here. Now, I want to go there. He's got one foot in heaven already. I want to go there. But as long as I'm here, I'm going to live backwards. With heaven clearly in my view and my steps leading me to that. If you could go to heaven today, would you? If you could be with Christ today, would you go? It's actually an interesting question. 
Give up your job. Done. <laughs> When's the bus leaving? <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> Leave your spouse. Leave your friends. Leave your family. Not see your kids or grandkids grow up. Would you do it? It's a tough question to wrestle with, isn't it? It reveals our faith or it kind of betrays our lack of faith. It shows what our eyes are truly fixed on. You know, we cling so strongly, so tightly to life that we do anything to live as long as possible. We even eat kale. <laughs> you know you're desperate at that point. <laughs> you know, kale tastes like hopelessness and broken dreams. <laughs> but someone said it's good for us, it'll make us live forever, so we eat it. Tastes like I'd rather be fat to me. I just offended half the audience eating their kale chips in church. I see you. You know, Heather and I moved here six months ago for a reason. We didn't come because we had to. We didn't come because, you know, we got fired or something like that. We came because we chose to. We came because we were praying about it. Our youngest is about to go out of the house. We, we, we're going to be empty nesters. We're both teachers. We're both teachers now at Culver Middle School, and we were teachers out in the desert where we came from, by Palm Springs, where we came from. And we've been teaching for a while, and, and to be honest, I was getting uncomfortable with how comfortable I was. And we were praying, like, God, we want to do more for you. We want to, we want to run our race better for you. We, we're feeling a little stuck right now. We don't want to be in a position, that's how I was feeling, where I didn't need the Holy Spirit anymore. My life was so under control and so easy that I knew what I was doing. I was like, God, you've got to shake this up. So we prayed about it. And God led us here. And we sold our big old house, and we had a 3,000 square foot house that we sold. We sold our appliances, our furniture. Now we rent a place that's about a quarter of this size for more money. <laughs> We had to take a pay cut to come here because your salary is based on how many years you're in a district. So we took a pay cut to come to pay for that tiny little box that we live in. We gave up our tenure and now we're probationary teachers year one, which means I could be fired tomorrow. <laughs> we gave up the security of that, but most important, we left all our friends. The people who'd walked through the pain with us and had built our marriage back together and helped us with our kids. We left them. But we came here because we were so convinced that the Spirit wanted us here. And we wanted to throw off everything that hindered. Anything that could entangle us. So we could run our race faster, with more patience, to get to this place. I've got some questions for reflections for you to consider. And some action steps for you to take. As you're moving forward in your own race, some things to consider, and I want to leave you with these thoughts. Whenever I start to hang my head in front of failure's face, my downward fall is broken by the memory of a race. A children's race, young boys, young men, how I remember well. Excitement, sure, but also fear. It wasn't hard to tell. They all lined up so full of hope, each thought to win that race. We're tied for first, or if not that, at least take second place. Their parents watched from off the side, each cheering for their son. And each boy hoped to show his folks that he would be the one. The whistle blew and off they flew. 
like chariots of fire. To win, to be the hero there, was each young boy's desire. One boy in particular, whose dad was in the crowd, was running in the lead and thought, my dad will be so proud. But as he speeded down the field and crossed a shallow dip, the little boy who thought he'd win lost his step and slipped. Trying hard to catch himself, his arms flew every place. Amidst the laughter of the crowd, he fell flat on his face. As he fell, his hope fell too. He couldn't win it now. Humiliated, he just wished to disappear somehow. But as he fell, his dad stood up and showed his anxious face, which to the boy so clearly said, get up and win that race. He quickly rose, no damage done, behind a bit, that's all, and ran with all of his might in mind to make up for his fall. So anxious to restore himself, to catch up and to win, his mind went faster than his legs. He slipped and fell again. He wished that he had quit before with only one disgrace. I'm hopeless as a runner now. I shouldn't try to race. But through the laughing crowd, he searched and found his father's face with a steady look that said again, get up and win that race. So he jumped up to try again, 10 yards behind the last. If I'm to gain those yards, he thought, I've got to run real fast. Exceeding everything he had, he regained eight, then 10. But trying hard to catch the lead, he slipped and fell again. Defeat. He lay there silently, a tear dropped from his eye. There's no sense running anymore. Three strikes, I'm out. Why try? I've lost. So what's the use, he thought. I'll live with my disgrace. But then he thought about his dad, who soon he'd have to face. Get up, an echo sounded low. You haven't lost at all. For all you have to do to win is rise each time you fall. Get up, the echo urged him on. Get up and take your place. You were not meant for failure here. Get up and win that race. So up he rose to run once more, refusing to forfeit. And he resolved that win or lose, at least he wouldn't quit. So far behind the others now, the most he'd ever been, still he gave it all he had and ran like he could win. Three times he'd fallen stumbling. Three times he rose again. Too far behind to hope to win, he still ran to the end. They cheered another boy who crossed the line and won first place, head high and proud and happy, no falling, no disgrace. But when the fallen youngster crossed the line in last place, the crowd gave him a greater cheer for finishing the race. And even though he came in last with head bowed low, unproud, you would have thought he'd won that race to listen to the crowd. And to his dad, he sadly said, I didn't do so well. To me, you won. His father said, you rose each time you fell. And now when things seem dark and bleak and difficult to face, the memory of that little boy helps me in my own race. For all of life is like that race with ups and downs and all. And all you have to do to win is rise each time you fall. When depression and despair shout loudly in my face, another voice within me says, get up and win that race. God bless you. You've just listened to the West Side Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit thewestsidechurch.com or laicc.net.